This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. Season 3 will begin next week, but in the meantime, I have a special treat for you. On this episode, I will be discussing the four-part documentary investigation discovery series, Dead North, that was recently released. This series details the case of a man who went missing in northern Michigan in 2014, and the town's police chief's dogged pursuit to find out what happened to him and bring the culprits to justice. If you haven't watched the series and would like to, I know that you can stream it from the Investigation Discovery Channel, the ID Go app, Investigation Discovery's app, and you can also stream it through other services like DirecTV and Amazon Prime. You can do a search for it through your provider or online to find the episodes. But be warned up front, this episode contains lots of spoilers. In essence, we will cover the entire case. So if you haven't watched it, you may want to do that first and then come back to listen to this episode. This bonus episode will be a little different in that it will be a discussion. I've done this a couple of times and I've gotten positive feedback. But not to worry, Once Upon a Crime isn't changing formats. This is just a one-off discussion for something a little different before we begin Season 3. This time, my co-host is none other than my youngest brother, Tony. I'll have him introduce himself at the top of the show. But without further ado, let's begin today's episode. Right after a quick word from our sponsor. Furniture shopping can be such a hassle. You start out excited about redecorating a new space, but as you begin the process, you often have a struggle finding the right look you want for a reasonable price. And furniture just seems to get bigger and more bulky. You can hardly fit it through the door and forget about getting it upstairs. Sheesh. The founder of Campaign Living felt exactly the same way. So he built a company around an easier, more affordable, and hassle-free experience. While providing great-looking and durable furniture, people really want. Campaign Living makes sofas, chairs, love seats, and ottomans using quality materials that arrives, get this, packed conveniently in a flat box. No waiting around for delivery people. Each piece is also made ready to assemble in a few minutes. Finally, and probably the best part for me, is that they offer easy-to-remove covers. You can change the look of your home without having to buy a new sofa. And the covers are completely washable. Great if you have kids or pets or are just messy like me. To check out all the great looks Campaign Living has to offer, go to campaignliving.com. And if you use my offer code once at checkout, you can get $75 off any sofa, love seat, or chair. That's campaignliving.com. And use the code once at checkout. And thanks for supporting the show. So we're going to go ahead and begin our discussion of the four-part documentary series, Dead North, which aired on Investigation Discovery Channel. And was that last month that that came out? I know you told me about it, first of all. Yeah, I think it was the like the 28th of last month. I think it was the very end of the month. Okay, so you watched it when it just came out, right? Yeah, I missed the first episode the day it came out, but I watched it the next day and followed it up live with the second one. Okay. So the voice you're hearing there <laughs> is my brother, Tony. And I'm going to, we're going to be having this discussion. I think because we both watched this 
uh, series. Actually, he told me about it, and then I watched it. And I ended up staying up pretty late watching, um, I think, at least two and a half episodes <laughs> in a row. I kind of binged on it, and then I finished the rest like that, you know, the next day or two, because it's just a really fascinating documentary series. But um, but first, I'm going to have uh, Tony introduce himself. So, Tony, let the listeners know a little bit about who you are. I'm Tony Polly. Um, I live outside of Philadelphia. As Esther said, I'm her little brother. I'm a scientist by trade, I guess, um, but I'm really into uh, true crime, like a lot of people. Fall asleep to investigation discovery a lot of the time. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So when did that start? Like, how how long would you say you've been watching true crime and you know all of these shows and things? It, I guess it started with Dateline. You know, the the Dateline series. I mean, I was I was even watching. I remember being as a kid watching unsolved mysteries and stuff like that so i've been captivated by it for some time not in a grotesque way or anything <laughs> like that but you know just interested in the criminal mind and how people can think the, the way that they do and stuff like that just trying to understand that so yeah i hear that a lot when people bring up uh when they first started listening and and you know not listening but watching true crime that a lot of them talk about unsolved mysteries and and that has yep. been it's been on for so long. I guess a lot of people started out there. That's one of the big big ones I hear about a lot. So what we're gonna do is, as you guys like like I said at the top of the show, um, there is a lot of spoilers in this. We're basically gonna be going through the whole case and talking about uh, from beginning to end what happened in this case. If you know the story, you know if you happen to be from that area and you know the story, or if you watched Dead North, or if you did both, then you're gonna probably really like this. If you haven't watched Dead North and you want to, I would just say, like you know, I said before, there will be spoilers, so you may want to go watch that first. Um, but, and there's several ways to watch it, and I also said that at the beginning um, in the opener. But we are going to be going through it, so if you don't think you're going to watch it, or you just, yeah, I just want to hear about the case, you will get all of the details as we know them. I'm going to go ahead and start with the, the timeline here. Um and first, I'm going to talk about where this takes place, because I don't know for you, Tony, but it seemed to me that the location of this case was really significant for some reason. And I'm not I haven't really quite put my finger on why that is. Maybe if it's just I mean, I don't know anything about this area, which is um, the name of the town is Iron River. And this is in Michigan and it's located in northern Michigan, you know, very northern Michigan, and a place that's called the Upper Peninsula, and they call it the UP in the show. It's, it's the part of Michigan that isn't the mitten. It isn't the mitten? See, I don't even yeah. know what that means. <laughs> so when you look at Michigan, it always looked like a it always looks like a a mitten. Someone's hand in a mitten. That's how I learned what Mich- which state was Michigan. And okay. so the Upper Peninsula is that part that's disconnected from the mitten part. <laughs> it's near Lake Superior. It's, you know, almost to the Canadian border. So it's very uh, northern area. And again, I don't know anything about that area. So I think the big thing is that, A, it's remote. So um, the town that they were living in, you could walk a mile and be in the middle of wilderness. That was one of the keys. And also the lack of support from the department the police department for that area consisted of like two people so they needed 
uh, outside support from the Michigan State Police, and they didn't they they were not getting the um, support that was necessary to conduct a thorough investigation of of what was going on. Right. So I think that played into to it a lot. Yeah, because this town was you know, it's tiny. It was like a population of about three thousand people. So right. yeah, so it was a very small place. And you know, in in reality, that's pretty common throughout the United States. I'm sure other people is most police departments are not that big. You know, the majority of them are, you know, serving smaller areas. Of course, you've got the big, you know, ones everybody knows, NYPD and the LAPD. And, but the majority of America, I would say, are small towns and so small police departments and without the resources that you would think of when you watch these crime shows. Right. But even with that, um, there. Like in in my area, although I'm close to Philadelphia, I'm in the suburbs, but there are several police departments in the area. So I would assume that if one police department needed help, they would be able to get easy help from another nearby police department, even if it was another small town. This place was so remote that I don't think there was any help other than the state police. So I think that that was a that was a big um, issue. The Michigan State Police that, um, from the documentary, they did not seem to be very helpful at the time. This case starts out with a, with a little bit of a mystery. Um, it starts out with a missing person. So the person who was reported missing was a man uh, by the name of Chris Regan, and he was a 53-year-old Air Force vet. And the person who reported him uh, missing was his ex-girlfriend and still a good friend of his, a woman named Terry O'Donnell. Chris and Terry met in the 1980s while they were in the Air Force. I think, were they both in the Air Force? Um, I'm not quite sure on that. Yeah, I wasn't sure on that either. If they were both in the Air Force, if he was in the Air Force and wherever he was stationed, he met her. But they met in the 80s. Um, they had dated for a while, but then um, he went, you know, they went their separate ways. But then in 2012, so many, many years later, they reconnected and they started a long-term relationship at that point. I think it was slightly long distance as well, if I remember. She lived in Iron Mountain. He did not. He ended up moving there, I believe, is what happened. I don't think she lived in Iron Mountain. I think she lived maybe 20, 30 minutes away or something like that. Okay. Yeah, because her parents did live in that area. So they reconnected in December of 2012, and they started this relationship, or I guess they continued this relationship that started maybe um, long distance. He then moved to Iron Mountain and he took a job or the Iron Mountain area and took a job at a company called Lakeshore Systems, which was a mining equipment company. And when he moved to town, he rented a small apartment that was owned by Terry's parents. It was actually located above like a grocery store. So I guess they owned like maybe a small building or something. And this apartment was located above it and he rented that from them. Um, at the same time as he was working there, he was also studying for a business degree. So they continued dating um, and everything was going very well. It seemed um, it seemed like they were very compatible. He and she enjoyed being outdoors and hiking and kayaking and doing all these things. He had a boat, um, doing all these outdoor kind of activities um, and just seemed to have a really, really good relationship. It was at this point where I was thinking, okay, she pushed him off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you are watching these things, right? When you're like, okay, when did she kill him and how? Right away, you're going to think. So, but what ended up happening was, you know, they continued this relationship and she took a trip to Europe 
during this time, you know, time that they were dating. When she returned, she found out that, um, you know, her boyfriend, I mean, long term, which she would consider a serious boyfriend, had dated several other women while she was away. Um, so she wasn't real happy about that. He told her that it was not anything serious. This was just casual sex. And, of course, she wasn't too pleased about that. So they actually ended up breaking up in April of 2014. But they still remained friends, and they continued to talk quite frequently. Um, I think that relationships in this case really play a big part. And there's a lot of different kinds of relationships that you're like, on a couple of them, I was kind of scratching my head at first, like, what is going on here? <laughs> this yeah. is not this is not a traditional relationship. But it did seem that they were able to, you know, continue being friends. Um, which I mean, they're mature people at this point. They're they're not. I think at the time she may have been what, maybe late thirties, early forties. He was a little older. Yeah. Yeah. Because he yeah, he was in his early fifties. But, but the entire time they're talking about their relationship and breaking up and Still being friends, I'm thinking motive, motive. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's it's much, much more interesting than that, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, they remained friends. They talked frequently. Um, according to Terry, that they continue to be friends and share their lives with each other and talk about what's going on. But they did not share with each other other relationships. Um, so, like, if she was dating somebody or he was dating somebody or whatever, they wouldn't. They wouldn't talk about that, which is probably kind of smart, but that was just something that they just kind of kept that to themselves when they were talking to each other. So Chris, like I said, was working at this company and he had a coworker, a woman named Kelly Cochran. There were rumors that started at the company that they were having an affair. The reason they're calling it an affair, because she was married. She had actually been married for 12 years to a man named Jason, Jason Cochran, and this is where things get really kind of interesting as far as when we start talking about relationships and strange setups and things like that, where I kind of went away shaking my head for at least 15 minutes of this, <laughs> of this, <laughs> you know, of this first episode. Because I'm like, what is going on here? So rumors began that she was having an affair with Chris, but there was also I don't even think it was rumors. I think, didn't she come right out and just was pretty open about that she was hooking up with guys at work? Well, she was, she had been seen talking to to Chris. And it was apparent that something was going on. And when I think what I remember is that when they asked her about it, she started talking about it, right? And from what I remember, Chris was not happy that the rumors were spreading that, they were having an affair. It seems like he was kind he of... He seemed like a really nice guy. He didn't want to be that guy. Right? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He seemed like everybody really liked him. He was kind of easygoing. He was not like... He wasn't one of these guys that was walking around bragging about, oh, I got this chick and that one. You know, it wasn't anything like that. But there were also other people, other men at that place that it seemed like she was either flirting with or having an affair with. Or there whatever. was one other guy that she was definitely having an, an, an affair with. Right. Uh, in addition to Chris. And yeah. they talked about that a lot. But it seemed like it was kind of an open secret at work of this was going on, right? So, right. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Jason Cochran, her husband. 
And he was an interesting guy <laughs> because I thought, okay, because it's like, again, it seemed like it was a pretty open secret. So I thought, okay, well, maybe they have an open marriage, right? And right. it was, I was a little confused about this because it kind of seemed like it was, and it kind of seemed like it wasn't an open marriage. You know what I mean? Correct. So, yeah. So what we find out about him is that he had some health issues. Um, one of the things he had was a very debilitating back injury and he would be laid up a lot. And as a matter of fact, I don't think he was working anymore. Correct. During this time. Right. Yeah. The long and short of it apparently was that he couldn't, couldn't do a lot of things that he used to do, including having sex with his wife. And apparently she told this to at least a couple of coworkers and, and she began hooking up with guys for sex, basically, uh, even though she was married and she wasn't planning to get divorced and she still was living with her husband and all of that. And she would say later that her husband knew about this. It was kind of a, an agreement they had. He knew he didn't ask questions. She didn't tell him details. Um, he wasn't happy about it, but I guess the idea was that he didn't want his wife to leave him. There were some interesting things that came up when they first figured out that Chris had been dating this woman, and they went to go just talk to her. And, and we could talk about that later, but there was it, there was an interesting uh, exchange of questioning just at their house. She portrayed it as... He wasn't happy, but he was accepting of it. Right. Exactly. So that, That's a good so word. That, and she said that he was accepting of it. That it was just part of their, you know, their agreement. Kelly and Chris, of course, would then meet at his apartment or other locations. And, of course, never at Kelly's house because Kelly was married and her husband lived there. So um, that would be something that would come up later on. Chris um, also had some issues with his knee and he had knee surgery, and this was in, when, in the summer, in August of 2014. One of the uh, outcomes of this was because his job at Lakeshore required him to be on his feet and a lot. And, you know, and because of the knee surgery it just and the knee issues he was having, he decided that he needed to um, leave his job. But I kind of wonder if there was another reasons, you know, that to, to, yeah. to leave that area. They kind of portrayed it like he just wanted to start fresh. So he decides to look for another position where he doesn't have to be on his feet all the time. So he begins looking for other job opportunities. He And apparently he cast that net far and wide because he ended up finding a job and uh, was offered a job, uh, a desk job at a company in Asheville, North Carolina, which would be about how far from Michigan? Uh, a long way. A long way, Yeah. <laughs> No, it's states away, so not not yeah. close at all. He tells his friend Terry O'Donnell that he's planning to move to North Carolina, um, and he's excited about that. Like you said, he wanted a fresh start. Um, this was a fresh start. He's moving to a whole new area. Um, he had also, and they, this comes up in the documentary as well. He had reconnect reconnected with his adult with one of his adult sons, and he had invited his son to come to North Carolina with him, um, and his son accepted that, and he was excited. And his yeah. son was excited as well. Yeah, they were both very excited about that. I guess he had gotten divorced when his kids were pretty young. So now they had that chance. So Chris then spoke with Terry in October when he told her about the move. Again, they were still friends. And there was also some hint that maybe they might still be thinking about 
reconciling at some point, and they had planned to get together over Thanksgiving or Christmas of that year. She noticed that he was excited about moving to his new job. He had already given the company his two weeks' notice, and she last spoke with him right around mid-October. But then she doesn't hear from Chris after that. She said that they would speak quite frequently or email. He would definitely return her phone calls. Yeah, he would always return phone calls, and then she would leave messages and she wasn't getting in response. And so this was, you know, concerning. She's wondering what was going on. I think at some point he had asked her if he if she would be willing to move down there with him or or something like that, something along those lines. So that was another reason for her to at least be calling more frequently just to, you know, maybe they were trying to reconcile and trying to see how it would work, you know, either maintaining the friendship long distance or possibly he gets set up down there and then she starts visiting or something like that. From what I read in one of the um, interviews with her in another place that she had said that, she had said that he had been talking about, you know, getting back together. He had even talked about, you know, maybe we'll eventually get married. He, he was already starting to kind of think about that. She was telling him, well, go get settled and we'll see each other. We'll spend some time together. We'll see how it goes. So, but I don't think she, she wasn't, she wasn't shining him on, I don't think. I think she really was thinking about it, but she wanted to... Well, given the given the past when she had gone to Europe, I think she was probably just being, you know, hesitant and kind of easing back into things because she didn't want to get hurt again. Right. Exactly. That's exactly how it seemed. But she seemed like she really did love him and she really, you know, liked him even as a person. So um, they, like I said, they continued to keep in touch. But all of a sudden, you know, he's just, he's off the grid and she's like, what, what's going on? So after about two weeks of not hearing from him, she traveled to Iron Mountain and went in and reported Chris Reagan missing. So then when she does go to the Iron Mountain police, the person who is going to play a very big part in this case, this is who she goes and she meets, is um, she's the chief of police at that time. Her name was Laura Frizzo. They then together went to... Well, it wasn't Chief, it wasn't chief Frizzo that went with her. It was the other... Oh, the lady. Right. There was another detective. There was another detective, right. It was another woman. That's right. So she made the report to, to Laura Frizzo, and then um, she sent her with the detective to the apartment. And this is the part that I thought was really interesting, and I don't know that I've seen this a lot. What I noticed, and this, I think this is why I made such a compelling documentary, um, it partly, was because they had video of everything. They had body cams. They had body cams that they, they would turn on whenever they were doing any of this stuff. Going to the, um, you know, the houses to talk to people, going to the apartment to check on things. So there's all this great video of, you know, at the moment when these things are happening that you get to watch in this documentary, which I just really liked. I thought that was that was fascinating because it's like you're there. And, right. and, and with that, you can see the level of concern and you can hear the level of concern on um, Terry in Terry's voice and her actions seem consistent with someone who's genuinely concerned about her friend who she hasn't heard from. And you're in the moment with them, and you're you're getting that emotion from them. It's not like it's a third you know party retelling of it. You know, months later, it's it's right then, which I thought was, I mean that that to me was gold as far as a documentary filmmaker. I mean, you can't get any better than that, right? To have something yeah. like that. But it, but the, the question I had later on when the Michigan State Police 
start thinking it might be Terry is, did you watch the video? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, go watch the videos. Yeah. It yeah. would tell you something. So when they check the apartment, uh, what we see on the video when they're going through the apartment is that he had not moved out. Remember, he was getting ready to go. He was packing. There was boxes there that had been packed, um, but there was still quite a bit of things that hadn't been packed. There was dirty dishes in the sink. Um, his medication was there. Like I said, he had the pain medication for after his knee surgery or whatever. Um, you know, it just looked like somebody who had just left the house for a few moments and then not returned. Terry also said that he was kind of meticulous about how he kept the house as well, and that he would not have left the house like that for an extended period of time. I can't remember exactly how they ended up finding his car. Do you remember the that? The only thing I remember them saying is Terry said, and this this was this was the only part where I questioned Terry her information because she's like she says I heard that they found they someone saw his car four miles outside of town or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, where are you getting this information from? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you're right. There was a little bit of a, a suspicion there for a second because it was like, how did, you know, how do you find the, the car so quickly? It, yeah. it, it kind of, you know, the the weird thing is it kind of called into mind for me the Adnan Syed case when they found Heyman Lee's car. Like, it was the where it was parked and who found it and that kind of thing. I'm like, okay, are we going there now? Is that what's happening? <laughs> like, how did who who knew about this car? But so they find the car in, like I said, it was parked about four miles outside of town at a park and ride lot. Um, and then, again, they have the, the, the body cams they're showing as they get to the car what they see, right? Um, so they saw, you know, a bunch of items in there. They His knee brace was inside. And she asked her, well, is this something that he would wear all the time? And and she said, yeah, he said he would, he would not leave it behind. That would be something he wouldn't leave behind. And then there was other items that they found that they said, it's just weird that why wouldn't he take this? Why is And why is this park here? Because Terry had said that he'd never gone to that park and ride lot. And, of course, so then the chief says, okay, we need to investigate this, right? Um and I think, so what happens pretty quickly is the consensus was, except for uh, except for the chief, was, oh, he probably left voluntarily. And I, I don't know what they based that on. Well, so I guess Frizzo didn't have the resources necessary to, to figure this case out at first. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a little bit later because I, I know Frizzo talked to his coworkers and stuff, but I think when she got the inkling that something was amiss here. When she asked the Michigan state police for help, they just said, I ah, probably walked into the woods and disappeared. It, and it was just like, that's how you're going to end your investigation. Just okay. Yep. We, we don't have time. We don't have, we don't, we don't care that much about you. You live in the upper peninsula. If you disappear, it's because you walked into the woods or you wanted to commit suicide. And Terry was, Terry was the one that really convinced Frizzo that, no, he was not like that at all. I mean, the only thing I thought was, okay, because it's at the park and ride lot. So, okay, he got on a bus and he just took off, you know. But really, I mean, without taking anything from, it didn't look like he took anything from the apartment, didn't take medication, didn't take his knee brace, didn't, you know, any of that kind of stuff. So it was just, yeah. didn't tell anybody. His son didn't know. Yeah, his son didn't know. His good friend who he talked to almost every day didn't know. Yeah, it didn't didn't make a whole lot of sense. So 
So then Frizzo continues to investigate. She st- starts talking to other people, including his coworkers, And then she hears about that rumored affair with Kelly Cochran. And then she finds, she also, they also found something interesting in his car, which was a, a scribbled note on the passenger seat that had directions to Kelly's house. It, it kind of confirms the fact that he probably didn't go to her house because he didn't know where it was because he had to have directions with him. And the fact that he po- he possibly went there close to the time when he went missing, but we'll get right. in we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, and if he and if he did, it was probably the first time he had ever been there. Right. So now they make the trip to the Cochrane home, and this is what we are we were alluding to earlier is that, you know, again she's got the body cam on. She knocks on the door. I think. Well, it's not again. It's not Frizzo. It's the detective. It's the detective. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Um, so, and, oh my gosh, I feel bad because I forgot her name. I didn't write it down. <laughs> You'll see her in the documentary. Yeah. She's does a, quite a bit of the investigation, at least initially. Initially, so, I think I think she might have because when they interviewed her, it said like retired ex detective or something. So I think she might have retired. So she knocks on the door and uh, Kelly Cock. Was it Kelly Cochran that answered the door first? No, her husband Jason answers the door. Okay. And they asked to speak to Kelly. And Jason says, she's not here. And he's like, I, she, she went out. I haven't seen her or whatever. And then all of a sudden, Kelly comes to the door. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, uh, we thought, you just said she wasn't here. She's right here. Yeah. And he kind of doesn't say anything else. And they start, they start asking her questions. Yeah. You know, um, Chris, yes. Do you mind if we ask you questions about her? And she's like, sure, go ahead. Do you want to do this without your husband present? No, it's fine. He knows about everything anyway. And she goes on to tell them that she's having an affair, that her husband knows about it, and lays it all out in front of her husband, standing right there, and he's silent. Yeah, Yeah, that was a very bizarre piece of that video yeah. where, yeah, he's just standing and he's very quiet. He doesn't say a word. Like he's just very, very quiet. But, you know, saying what you said is like, he says she's not there and then she, she's there. So right away that sets up that he's a liar. Exactly. So that starts that out. Right. So now she's like, okay, now I really need to kind of see what's going on with these people. Right. right. Um. So, but one of the statements she makes as she's being questioned by the detective is that she says she hasn't seen Chris in quote a couple of days. Now remember, Chris has been missing for over two weeks, or at least nobody's that we know of has seen or talked to him in over two weeks. But she's saying right away she hasn't seen him in a couple of days. So that, you know, red flags go up there. She also they also ask Kelly if she knew of any reason why Chris's car would be parked in the park and ride lot. Um, Kelly says she doesn't think so and that he would never abandon it because, quote, he loved that car. And she uses the past tense. Again, red flags. I would think if you're the detective and you hear that, it's like the hairs go up on the back of your neck. Yeah. Right? Because that's a total tell. You know, like, why are you talking about him in past tense? (laughs) We're looking for this person. You know, it's very, very odd. So, yeah, lots of red flags there. 
Then she, there, she's asked to come to the police station to be interviewed, and she totally agrees. She's very, very agreeable. <laughs> I got to say that through the whole thing, right? Right. And, and not only does she come, but um, I, I think, I'm not sure, I can't remember if it was this one or the next time they interviewed her, but her husband comes as well. Yeah, he does. But, one of the, it was, uh, I don't know if it was the initial one, but it was pretty quickly when they had them in again that he was there too. But he was in a separate room. They were separate. Right. Yeah, they were not questioned together. They were questioned separately. Right. So, again, she kind of goes into more of the story that she's been seeing Chris and they were having a sexual relationship. Um, and again, she tells her that tells them that Chris did not come to her house as this was their agreement since, of course, Kelly was married and her husband lived there. And then this is the whole thing that I I don't know why it came to my mind to call it the smoking lasagna because, <laughs> because there's been other things that have come out either before and after this documentary. Um, and for some reason on some of them, they make a, a very big deal about this lasagna. Okay. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. And it, again, this kind of comes to mind when Yolanda and I were doing the Scott Peterson case, we were talking about the pizza <laughs> because yeah. for some reason foods plays a part. People remember food. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. so she said, again, Chris is getting ready to move away. He's getting ready to go off on the next part of his life. She, at this time, I don't know if this was a farewell gesture or just whatever, um, that she said she had offered to cook him dinner and she was going to take it to his house. So she wasn't going to cook at her house because, of course, he doesn't go over there. So So here's the the thing I'll say about this. Mm -hmm. People, People that lie tend to add details they don't need to right right this whole lasagna thing <laughs> she told the whole menu about the lasagna. you don't need to talk about a lasagna all you would have to say is yeah we went over to his house yeah. like, that's all you have to say you don't have to add that you made a lasagna and yeah. took it to his house and if you made a lasagna there's probably a lot of lasagna and there'd probably be leftover lasagna yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, Frizzo said she even looked for the lasagna at Chris's house after because it became such a big deal that she actually went and looked for the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't there. Because she tells her, and it's in the, you know, it's, it's on video, and she's, she's talking to her, and she tells the chief, yes, you know, she made a lasagna, she made garlic bread, I think there was also a green salad, um, and she was taking this all to his house. And she also, again, you, like you said, the, the details that you add that for no good reason, she also brought plates. Um, doesn't he have plates of his own? <laughs> <laughs> but it was so funny because she's talking and all of a sudden. He had everything else but the plates. <laughs> she's talking. silverware. She just brought the plates. She just brought so. the plates. Because she's going off on this whole menu. And then she pauses. This is Kelly Cochran. She pauses and then she goes. And I brought plates. <laughs> and Priscilla goes, and plates. You brought plates. And she's like, yes. <laughs> okay, then. It's like, righty then. <laughs> so that was a whole weird, tw- I'm just, just all these little details. But you're right. That is true. When people lie and they're trying too hard, they give way too many details that yeah. don't even matter. Right. And okay. they are easily checked that Easy- you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Like, where the hell's lasagna i think this was all this whole big story about the lasagna was all to set the story that he did not go to her house right right? 
that had to be the main reason why she went into such elaborate detail because she wanted to, to drive it home that he does not go, go to my house. But they see Chris on a gas station surveillance camera on October 14th. And, and you can watch it. And it's very clearly him. It's his car. It's him getting out of his car, going in, looks like, to pay for gas. And the gas station is located between his and the Cochrane, his, his apartment and the Cochrane home. So she knew that he had left his apartment that evening. Nothing else. She knew he had left his apartment that evening. And, of course, she suspected that he may have been on his way to Kelly's house. Right. So. In the documentary, when uh, Frizzo was talking about talking to Cochran and, and her husband, there are moments during the investigation where she says, like, I knew something was up. The way that they're talking, what they're the, the the added details, the hairs on the back of her neck were standing up because mm -hmm. she knew something was going on. Something was, yeah, something was. A miss. Mm -hmm. Right. Today's episode is also brought to you by Pitney Bowes. Guys, I do a lot of shipping. Every month I send out perks and thank you notes to our Patreon supporters, so I have to send packages and letters both. Pitney Bowes Mailing and Shipping Solutions help me do so with confidence, ease, and convenience. No matter what your small office needs are, Pitney Bowes SendPro C200 has you covered. You can easily calculate postage so you don't overpay or underpay. The worst is when your letter or item gets returned for lack of postage. With SendPro C200, you can compare and choose different rates from three different carriers. Weigh, print, and mail, all from the convenience of your desk. No time-wasting trips to the post office. You can save $0.03 cents per letter and up to 39% off retail shipping rates. To get started, go to pb.com slash once to get a free 60-day trial for all Pitney Bowes C200 models. That's pb.com slash once to start your free trial today. Talkspace is an online therapy company that provides therapy for how we live today. You can message a licensed professional therapist, all from the convenience and privacy of your computer or phone, using Talkspace's mobile app. We're all busy, and sometimes we put off taking care of ourselves. Talkspace makes it easy to connect with a therapist who fits your needs. You can choose from over 2,000 licensed therapists to talk to about everyday challenges from work to family to relationship issues and more. It's a great way to manage stress, uncover solutions, and get support, feedback, and encouragement. And we can all use that. To match with your perfect therapist today for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash O-U-A-C and use the code O-U-A-C to get $45 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash O-U-A-C and use offer code O-U-A-C to start living your happier life. We didn't. We didn't um, really describe Kelly or Jason, like what they looked like, because Kelly was. Oh, oh, she was. Chris I think could do better. <laughs> <laughs> Chris was a very, very good-looking man. Very good-looking man, right? He was. He was fifty-three, but he did not look fifty-three to me. I thought he looked maybe forty-three, forty-five. He was, um, you know, younger-looking, and I think Terry was also younger than him, but they looked about the same age. I would say. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Um, and 
Kelly, um, she was about 35, so she was younger. But she didn't look, to me, she didn't look 35. Did she look like she's had some hard, some hard times. <laughs> yeah, she looked like she, she, yeah, she lived a little bit of a hard life there. Um, she was pretty plain Jane. She was not a girly girl. Let's put it that way. Um, they said she was very active. She liked to, you know, be outdoors and you see her in what, jet skis. And she had been a lot heavier because they showed her wedding picture. She was heavier. She had lost weight. Um, so she, but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't a petite thing. She was kind of a bigger person height wise. I don't know, really tall, but she wasn't a little petite girl. She was, um, she had a lot of tattoos. She had dark hair. She. A lot of butterfly tattoos. Lot oh I forgot about the butterfly we have to talk about that later <laughs> I forgot about that yeah she had a lot of butterfly tattoos and other tattoos um, so yeah she looked you know like she she looked like not to say that she looked super hardcore or anything like that but she looked like somebody who would look pretty comfortable kind of sitting at a bar you know like kind of a bar yeah. biker bar dive bar just kind of you know hanging out with the locals kind of thing right but even. But even that being said, she was married to her husband almost right out of high school. Yeah. Or like high school sweetheart. Yeah, they were. So it's not like she went on this, you know, high school, post high school kind of like wild and crazy time or something. Mm -hmm. She was married. Early. Young. Yeah, very young. Very young. So it, that could have been part of it. You know, she never did that she never dated she was like you said with her high school boyfriend got married you know pretty young um and then i don't know maybe that gave her an excuse like okay well you know i can go out and date guys or whatever they did say a lot of uh co-workers and people other guys said she really she liked attention she liked male attention a lot um and yeah. she sought it out a lot she flirted a lot um she did a lot of kind of sexual kind of language flirting with with guys to get their interest there was a lot of that going on. Um, her husband, he also looked older than his age because he was about her, the same age she was. He looked, so, uh, not to be mean or anything, but the guy, uh, if you've seen, um, what's the movie with Kristen Wiig? Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids, yeah. Her, her uh, Rebel Wilson was her roommate uh -huh. and her brother, the bald-headed brother. Yeah. That's what he looked like. Yeah, he's he's kind of a, a kind of a, a chunky, um, bald headed guy. You know, he's not like a big, tall, you know, muscular guy. So it kind of made sense when you could see she kind of was in charge. Like, I mean, almost you want to think kind of like a henpecked husband in a way. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It seemed like he gave her the attention in high school, mm -hmm. and she, and she reciprocated because, I mean. Like you said, she had lost a lot of weight yeah. uh, afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so then she was his whole world. Yeah. And then, but he was not hit hers. And he also, I believe uh, they do talk about that he did suffer from depression. He, I think maybe had a bit of an anxiety disorder. I'm not sure, but there was, if it didn't happen earlier, it definitely happened later in his life. Um, well, so that, that, that's... That's, uh, I guess, a question. So he, when they interviewed him the first time, the first thing out of his mouth was, I just want you to know that I just came out of uh, uh, 
a facility for anxiety and depression. Um, I was having panic attacks, so if it seems like I'm a little skittish, it's because of that or whatever. Right. Um, so the question becomes, is it that he was dealing with that before, or was it because he was dealing with all this? His wife n- running around. Well, running around or because of what? What happened? The transpiring. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they said, and this was the one I remember seeing, it might have been on another program where they showed a piece of his interview where oh, it had to be the second time because later on when they bring them in under suspicion, the first thing he starts talking about is his back problems and his health problems. And she's like, that's very odd that, you know, we're, we're talking about some, a serious crime that we're questioning him about. And he goes right into his health issues and wants to detail those for us. She goes, and that was, that was odd. Um, so, yeah, so he's odd. He responds to things very oddly. Let's put it that way. He said that he knew about his wife's affair and that he'd allowed it to continue uh, without challenging her or questioning her because of his injuries and he was unable to work or have sex and he felt bad about that and he couldn't be a complete husband to his wife. So he, you know, and he didn't want his wife to leave him. So he just kind of allowed things to continue without making much of a deal of it. So, of course... Frizzo is going to think, okay, we've got a jealous husband here. And that's going to be the first kind of line of questioning. What do we need to look at? Because if this guy found out his wife, obviously he knows his wife was having an affair. And if he got really angry about it, maybe he did something to Chris. And maybe that's why you know, he's gone. We can't find him. I think that was the second interview when they brought them in. Because after that is when they, all of a sudden, they move. Um, well, so, no. So they interview them again and in that interview they was that the interview they talk about somehow they get to the point where they they um jason says that he actually took a hike and like actually saw like yes. he says he never saw uh chris's apartment but then they he did admit to seeing it must have been his apartment because you know i saw his truck had a kayak oh, right. and she said that he had a kayak or whatever there was that but then they they didn't move until after they did the search of the house okay so i wasn't sure because i read two different accountings of it and one of them they made it seem like it was before and then the other ones after so i wasn't quite sure so yeah, no, okay so they they it was after the search of the house okay so we need to talk a little bit about the search and what they found um well, before we get to the search sure we also have to say that Frizzo is getting pushback for investigating right. this crime the entire time from the city manager. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually have, there were um, protesters to let her do her job. Right. To find out what happened to Chris Regan. Yeah. And she was not getting support from the city manager. The Michigan State Police had said, oh, he's probably just walked into the woods. Mm-hmm. And Frizzo is the only person that's like, no, something happened here. Yeah. This is not adding up. We need to keep pushing this. And she's the one that kept pushing it. Finally, after doing these interviews and she got probable calls with all the information that she got, they got a, a search warrant from the, for the Cochran's house. And, you know, that's one of the things that you see, you know, as I research a lot of cases, I see that, that sometimes it just takes one really good detective who 
just has a sense that something is wrong and keeps pushing because a lot of things I would think can be easily explained away or, oh, we don't know. So we let that, you know, we let this go. And a lot of times there's one or two you know, investigators, detectives, you know, a cop, somebody, or sometimes it's even a family member who say, no, something is wrong here. And they just keep digging and digging until they get an answer. Um, but the crazy thing is, is that, I mean, so I guess her dad was a, was a police officer, mm-hmm. but she's not a trained detective, but she, you know, had this bulldog attitude of something's not right. And I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Which, you know, is a, is a, is a credit to her. Right. It reminds me of, um, if you watch the, the television series Fargo. Yeah. The, was it, I think it was this, was it the second season? I think it was the second season of it where it was the, she wasn't even a detective. She was just one of the, the cops, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that was the pregnant woman. Right. Um, yeah, that that was the whole thing is that she just kept going and going and going and, and wouldn't let every, when everybody even, you know, the bosses are saying just let let it go. And they're getting, like you said, pushback. They're even getting, you know, threats for their job if they just don't leave it alone. And she just couldn't let it go. Um, and there was there there was a couple of accounts that I read where people had said she was obsessed with this case. You know, it wasn't even a healthy obsession. It was an obsession with this case. <laughs> At the same time, it's yeah. it's probably one of the few, you know, big cases that she had. Or I mean, the town was only 3,000 people. Right. I, I can't imagine that there was many, you know, big investigations to conduct in yeah. the town. I mean, even if there was like um, a violent crime there, a shooting or something like that, it's usually pretty cut and dried. You know, right. it's a it's a it's a a fight that got out of hand or, you know, road rage. I mean, something simple. Um, yeah. Not like this, where you have a missing person and, you know, having to unravel all these little pieces. So, yeah, there was definitely that. But, yeah, it was amazing that even the the town was saying, we want to know, did something happen here? You know, did these people, are they responsible for something? We need, we want to know. And even if, even if they figured out that he walked into the woods, wouldn't it be nice to just shut the door on it with with knowledge that that's what happened? Yeah. As opposed to just like, yeah, we think he walked into the woods. Yeah. Yeah, just close it, whatever. And do you think I, that the, the the main reason for them not wanting to, was it just money? Was it just resources that they just didn't want to spend? I think it was resources, time, commitment. I Again, I think the Upper Peninsula plays a big part in this in that, Probably the Michigan State Police are based out of the not of the main part of Michigan. They have to travel up there. It's a remote area, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of time and resources to do that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not knowing what we know now, they could easily say that, yeah, yeah, he probably walked out into the woods and a bear got him or something like that mm-hmm. and just close it that way without. But, you know, again, Frizzo is from the community. Mm-hmm. She wants the Michigan state police are, are not, mm-hmm. she wants to know what happens to the people in her community. She, I, she lived there her, her, her entire life. Right. So she wants to know what happened in my town. And the other thing we forgot to mention mm-hmm. as well is, um, the Cochran's, um, had not lived there very long. Yeah. They had only moved there six months to a year prior. Okay. I wasn't sure how long it was. I know it wasn't long. But... It was not a long time. So they do the search um, of the Cochran's home in March of 2015, when they are finally able to, I guess, be able to do that. 
one of the first things you see on, again, this is all videotape was they're going and doing the search of, of the home. And they, so you walk into this house and there's a little small entryway and there's a couple of steps that lead up, I think, into like the main room, like living room. But right. in this little entryway, it's, it's a very a small, level. It's, it's, a, a split level house. it's a split level, but it's a very small area when you first walk in. It's not like right. a big area. It's small. And what they see there um, as they're going through, one of the things they see is what appears to be blood spatter found on the ceiling in that entryway, just inside the front door. Right. And they also found a loaded pistol underneath the television set in the living room. They come in, they ask them, do you have any weapon? And they say, yeah, you know, just living in the area that they do, they're like, oh, we have a twenty-two rifle mm-hmm. over there. And that's all they say. Mm-hmm. They find the loaded pistol, and they find an ungodly amount of knives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> knives, battle axes, like medieval. They don't even look old. They just are fashioned to look older. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they're, it's like a battle axe, like off, off the rack. Yeah. I, they said he had an, uh, the, the husband had an unhealthy obsession with knives mm-hmm. and, and weapons, but then they also found a loaded pistol. So when they asked there, so right off the bat, they come in, they ask them if you have any weapons, they lie about only having one and they have a lot more than that. Yeah. They lie. They lie about a lot of things, but let me ask you this. Have you ever like met anybody like when you were younger or maybe like in college or, you know, in your twenties or whatever, and you go to somebody's home and they're a collector of something weird. Like, or you just look around their house and you're like, what is up with this dude? You know what I mean? <laughs> I kind of, I, I, I had, and I kind of distanced myself from those people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, there's, there's a health, like in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of hunters and there's a healthy amount of, there's, there's an acceptable amount of guns that you can have. Right. right. When it gets to be, there's a gun in every room <laughs> or, you know, it's just, it, it becomes excessive to a point of you're, you're questioning, you know, how together are, yeah. are individuals. Yeah. I, and it also goes, I mean, if you talk to them, you, you get an understanding of where they're coming from. And yeah. so you don't, you know, you don't judge a book by its cover, but. To me, it seems like that when you see things like, and maybe not even just weapons, but just kind of things that are displayed that are kind of, I don't know, violence related or, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff or too graphic or too just, I mean, I don't know, underground kind of stuff. I mean, that's fine. Like you said, but when you see like it permeates a place (laughs) that you're like. It it puts you uh, in a not a defensive position, but a, uh, you're very wary. I would be wary. Like weird. Yeah. You're what is going on here? Yeah. And it seems like that would be something. If you see something like that, it tends to be younger guys, like maybe just over 21. You know what I mean? Like that makes more sense. But when you get a, a he was like, what, 35, 36, something like that. Mm-hmm. And with all this, I mean, what was that stuff? What, I mean, what are you, like a ninja? What is going on with all these <laughs> knives? What is going on? It's like, yeah. Who are you fighting <laughs> that you need that many weapons? <laughs> yeah, it was, oh, yeah. So, of course, then they're thinking, okay, this 
we got to look at this guy. We got to look at what's going on here. The other thing was, it, they didn't really specifically say this in the show, but it, it seemed to me that they had to find these items, that they weren't just, they weren't in like display cases either. Right. They were just strewn about the house, which yeah. is really weird. Like you open up the sock door and, ooh, there's a yeah. machete. It's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's one thing if you have like, you know, you're a military guy and you have the you know, the marine swords on your wall or yeah. whatever and you have some... Or mounted on something and... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not actively... It's in a sock drawer and you might actively use <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So when they search the house, they tell Jason and Kelly, you just can't be here. You can go wherever you want. Mm-hmm. You just can't stay here. So they go to the neighbor's house. Oh, right. While they're searching the house and they act very odd in front of the neighbors. The neighbors say that the the conversations that they're having at the neighbor's house is, is to the extent of, do you think they'll find anything? Well, when you ask that question, you're insinuating that there's something to find. Yeah. <laughs> and I, lo- I love the neighbors. They're so, okay. So it was a, it was a man and his son, like his son, it was like in his twenties, maybe you think. Yeah. Yeah. And I love them because they're very plain spoken people. And right. he says, he tells them, dude, they're the cops. If, they're they're, if there's anything they're to be found, you. they are going to find it. <laughs> that is what they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was just gold. <laughs> like, and they're like, you think so? He's like, yeah, dude, that's what they do. They, they finish up the search. The Cochran's go back to their house. And the next morning... They're gone. They're gone. They bugged out. They are gone. (laughs) And they basically took some clothes and that was it. They left everything. I mean, when they go in the house later, a lot of, I mean, their furnishings are still there. Their furniture is still there. You know, most of what was in there is still there. They just bugged out. They're gone. So while they're gone and they're, of course, trying to figure out where they went, and do all that part of the investigation. They also continue the investigation they had started. So they hire um, a forensic investigator who reexamines Chris's car. Remember, it was in the park and ride. They moved it, I guess, into, you know, somewhere. Impound. Yeah, yeah impound. And one of the things that he talks about um, <clears throat> on another show that I watch is that he finds leaves stuck under the trunk lids. When you open the trunk of the car, there was leaves kind of stuck inside. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Of course, they go back out and they. he actually was looking at the leaves to see what kind of trees they come from. Where are those trees at? I mean, they really did investigate this thing. And, um, you know, long story short, they said that there were you could see there are no trees around Chris's apartment where he normally would park his car, nor um, at the place like his place of business. But if you look at um, you see in Dead North in the documentary that the Cochran's house is surrounded by trees. It's 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 it's, you know, it's kind of out um, in the more countryside area, and there's a lot of trees surrounding it. So that was another thing they looked at. Um, and then they do a, um, they analyze the Chris's car, the GPS in his car. And it shows that he had been near the Cochran's home at that, that day, those two days in question, I think was the 14th and 15th or 13th and 14th, something like that of October. And of course, this is significant because supposedly as Kelly had told them over and over, they had never met there before. And because Kelly had told Chief Frizzo that Chris had never been there. 
So why would the GPS show that he had been there? So there was that. Um, and they also examined the Cochran's computer at their house, which I'm sure they probably left behind <laughs> when they bugged out. Um, and they found a Google map search that showed a satellite image of the nearby Caspian pit, which was an abandoned mine pit located outside of town. Apparently there's a lot of mine pits around that area. Like yeah, old abandoned they, mines. They, you know, they, the quarries, uh, dig in the pit or whatever, and then they fill them with water afterwards. So there's these big, deep uh, pits mm-hmm. that are just filled with water. And it's you can, so deep you can't see the bottom. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're super deep. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, and the pits are, they're pits. They're, it's not a slow uh, gradation Great. of a slope into, you know, the like in a lake. It's just... You take two steps off the edge, and it's a thousand feet down. Oh gosh, that's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> Tell me about that's <laughs> more of a nightmare of that than anything else in this show. That's terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I've heard a lot, Tony. It's, it takes a lot to shock me, <laughs> but we'll get there. <laughs> so they also searched this area um, that they found on the map, and they found a burn pit there, but they found no body, no body parts, no you know, anything like that. But they also had noticed that a burn barrel was found missing from the Cochran's property. And we in California don't have burn barrels, at least that I know of. So you, you can tell me what a burn barrel is, Tony, if you know what that is. I think it's just like a big, just a big, what you think of in like an oil barrel. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you ever think of like uh, homeless people, what they would, um, you know, make a fire in. Yeah. And- kind of warm their hands around. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a burn barrel is. And they just throw things in there to burn, like old whatever. I mean, and and I guess they have these at a lot of places because I know like in the Stephen Avery case, they talk about a burn pit on the property um, and they just, you know, people, it's just normal. People burn their garbage. They burn, you know, whatever. Get rid of it. I mean, in California... Yeah. yeah, I was going in, in in California. <laughs> they would like fine your butt off if you try. Just, you can't even light a barbecue on some days over here. I'm not even kidding. You can't. You will get fined. They will hunt you down. And if they don't hunt you down, your neighbors will turn you in. If it's a no burn day, oh my god, don't even think about it. It's like the cardinal sin in California that you burn something on a no burn day, which is most of them that you really need to burn stuff. Like when it's cold, you can't. So there was a burn barrel, apparently, that had been on the property. I guess you can tell where these are at because, sure, there's stuff around it, scorched or whatever. Um, it was found missing from their property. So they wondered where that went. The Cochran's, uh, Jason and Kelly, left Michigan that day when they bugged out. And they went, they headed for Lake County, Indiana, which is where they were from. At this point, um, Kelly was considered a person of interest. Um, I'm not sure if Jason was yet, but Kelly was. And, but they didn't have enough for an arrest. A year passed by after that, which I was surprised because, of course, you know, when you're watching this, the show, you can't really tell how long, but it was, it was a year that they were gone. And then the next event that happens that brings us back up um, is that Jason Cochran died. And this was in February of 2016 of an apparent heroin overdose. Why this was suspicious was, I don't know if at first it was. Jeremy Ogden, the the Hobart, Indiana police detective. Right. Was investigating his death. Oh, okay. 
so a couple of things. The amount of heroin that was in his system was not consistent with um, an overdose. With an overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that there was some, um, like, there were some signs that he didn't die of an overdose. There was I, there was marks on his know. body or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Some kind of marks. Um, yeah. No, I know sometimes when you're being strangled or whatever, you'll have petechial hemorrhage in your in the whites of your eyes. You'll right. have uh, blood vessels burst. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might have been that, but I'm not sure. But when he was looking into the case that he got, that his Jason's death, he found a corresponding case up in um, Michigan, and so he started talking to Frizzo okay. uh, about the case. Um, and they started um, conferring notes. Yeah, so that kind of brought those two investigations together. So right. now, now they're both working on this one in in Indiana and the other in Michigan. Correct. They were they were trying to figure out a way to um, get Kelly to admit something, mm-hmm. and so that's when they talked to the friend of Jason, who had called Ogden about. Um, an interaction that he had with um, Cochran right. that was on or something. Right. So, yeah, because they needed to get them to her, at least her now, not them, because he's gone. Um, they needed to get her to admit to something that they could make stick, right? Right. Um, so this is when the letter comes in. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, so the friend of Jason's, I get, so this, and this is pretty funny. Because the friend of Jason's wasn't, like, a... I don't think he was, like, an in-real-life friend. He was, like, a gaming friend. Because uh, Jason liked to play online video games. Right, okay. So they played video games all the time. And then, um, I guess they had exchanged phone numbers or whatever. And then um, he wasn't seeing them online. He texted him, And then he heard from Kelly about that he had died and he got concerned. I forget what the, the conversation, how the conversation transpired, but he got really nervous about thinking that Kelly had something to do with his friend Jason's death. So then he contacted investigators, so, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So then they bring him in and they, fig- I mean, they bring him into the investigation and they ask him to do, do them a favor. They say, hey, would you say that Jason sent you a letter? Mm-hmm. Um, so what he does, you know, and again, this is has put, been put together by the investigators, is for him to contact Kelly and say that, hey, I needed to tell you something. I was, you know, Jason's a friend of mine. Um, he had given me a letter and it's a sealed letter. And he told me that if anything ever happened to him for, for me to forward this letter to the police and I'm not sure what I should do. And of course, naturally <laughs> she panics cause she totally believes, you know, Oh crap. There's a yeah. Right. yeah. There's a letter. I think this played on her suspicions that he was, that Jason was ready to crack right. anyway. And that's mm-hmm. why she decided to do what she did. Which was which was their theory anyway, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Which was their theory that she had probably gotten rid of him because he knew too much and he was getting ready to spill the beans because, you know, he's freaking out over this. 
and she had to, you know, um, neutralize this threat that he might tell cops what they did. So she tells him, "Whatever you do, don't send the letter." And they have her on tape. They have her on tape saying it. Yeah, I mean, pleading with them and saying, "Don't, don't do it. Don't send the letter." So they bring her in for questioning after this conversation. Mm-hmm. Since Ogden was talking to to Frizzo, Frizzo is there as well, and this is in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And she comes in after Ogden says, "Is there anything you want to tell me?" Mm-hmm. You know, did you have any involvement? And she denies everything. She says nothing. At that point, Kelly realizes that they've put two and two together and they've they're figuring out exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so Kelly decides, okay, the jig is up. I've got to start cutting some deals so I don't get the death penalty. That's when she starts saying she had involvement in Regan's death. She doesn't take responsibility. Right. But she she says that she was involved in Rika's death. Um, I think it was primarily just to escape the death penalty. Yeah, because she blames she's going to blame it on Jason. Right. Because, of course, now he can't defend himself. He can't say differently. But then she then she leaves again. She leaves, I guess it's Indiana. Well, they're wait, awaiting, I guess, extradition or something to send her back to Michigan to face those charges. Um, and she goes to Kentucky. And it was a few weeks later, I believe it was in April, where she was found in Kentucky and arrested there and finally brought to Michigan. So I I was mistaken. What happens is she admits to nothing. She then flees. Mm -hmm. She then gets picked up a couple weeks later or whatever. In Kentucky, she gets brought back to Michigan. And that's when she starts cutting deals. Okay. Um, And then or they take her back from Indiana back to Michigan from there. Right. They were kind of finding a little bit more about her because as she, they were waiting, um, you know, waiting for her to be extradited back to Michigan, she was in jail in Indiana and she started doing some very um, violent things. She's turning a pair of eyeglasses into shanks. She's threatening guards. She threatened to commit suicide. She also threatened other inmates that if anybody got near her, she was going to, you know, kill them. Her true colors were starting to show at that point. If you see her in... All the interviews, she's very cooperative. She never seems to lose her, you know, temper, really. She answers everything um, as very matter-of-factly. You don't see any of that. So, yeah, and she had a little crush on uh, Jeremy Ogden, the detective from Indiana, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's well, been... I don't necessarily think she had a crush on him. Mm-hmm. Or I think she was just trying to manipulate it was her, him. But it was her way of being with, with men. Like the manipulative thing, seeing she can get him to her side, um, this and that, you know. But, I mean, he was able to get a lot of information out of her by appealing to that. Like, he could read her very well. And he would do things like he'd be questioning her and he'd, she would not look at him and he would say, you know, look, look at me, look at me. And he'd grab her hands and say, you know, you need to make this right. I mean, just very, like being very solicitous of her. It, It worked because he did cut information that they needed out of her she she kept hinting at things like she didn't come straight out and say things at first she would kind of hint around them and then he would dig a little more um but they i had seen uh, between together that him and uh frizzo uh, not together but separately or whatever they had spent a total of between 70 and 100 hours with her 
in see, that's that's the only part I don't like about some of these shows is I, I feel like they should have a running clock <laughs> on how long these people are in the interrogation room. Yeah. Because it seems like, and, and it's kind of played up on the uh, the fiction stuff too, that they they walk in 10 minutes later. They're telling them know, everything they know. They're spilling the beans yeah. and it's it's a lot more work than that. Although you sometimes you watch another, uh, what is it? Uh, the next 40 or the first 48 and they ask them one question. They're like, Oh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. They're saying it was up to like a hundred hours. I mean, can you imagine having to sit with some of these people who are so, ugh, you know, and hours and hours and hours with them? I just don't even know how you do that. Yeah, it, thank it, God. They're not smart enough to say, I want a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never saw a lawyer. <laughs> You never see a lawyer walk in there. Like, what is going on? I mean, we know this. We just watch these shows. We know this stuff. Yeah. That's crazy. So then, the, we, you know, she finally gets to the confession. So, um, and she pretty much tells them, of course, it's slanted in a light that it's, it's Jason who is the instigator. But she goes into detail. Here's the question I have for you, Tony. Were Kelly and Jason in on this together? Like she kind of made it seem and some sometimes when she was talking that she had to do this because Jason made her kind of, they, you know, they had this agreement. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so she had to do this. And then in, others, in other interviews when she's talking, she makes it seem like she invited him over. Her husband wasn't supposed to be there and he happened upon them. And then this happens. I think she tried to make it sound as if what you just said mm -hmm. was the case that she invited him over. The husband wasn't supposed to be there. And all of a sudden something happened mm -hmm. and now they had to deal with it. But I think in reality is if she had sex with somebody, they had to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this um, is because this is what she said. So, and I'm going to put it in these terms because I think this is what actually happened, is that she lured Chris Regan to her home, promising to make him dinner, and then they were going to have sex. Now, maybe because he's with leaving. Lasagna? With lasagna? <laughs> now she didn't mention lasagna. The lasagna was, you know, but let's, what, meanwhile, there was no dinner. So let's just take that <laughs> off. Just get, well, get no, rid of maybe that. Maybe lasagna was the only thing that could get him over to the house. Yeah, maybe. So she was going to make him dinner, and then they were going to have sex because now remember he's leaving. So maybe this was like a, a farewell, whatever. And that I believe you know she said her husband wasn't going to be there. Maybe she said he was out of town. Who knows what she said? But but of course Jason was in on this, I believe. Um, and this is what it looks like they kind of went with at the end because her and her husband apparently had made a pact when they got married in 2002, that if either one of them ever cheated on the other, that that person would have, would be killed. So if Kelly cheated on, on him with another guy, that Kelly would be the one to kill mm -hmm. the guy. And if the, um, Jason cheated on her with another woman, he would have to kill the woman. Mm -hmm. But she said she couldn't go through with it. Correct. So, in this instance, she says that um, she fell in love with Chris mm -hmm. and that he could, she couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So Jason was going to have to do it. He was going to do it. Right. Right. So he gets to the house. Chris arrives at the house. She greets him at that door in that little entryway, of course, like we talked about. And she begins to lead him up the stairs into the house. 
at this point, Jason steps out. He was either outside of the house or I don't know if there was another door into that entryway, but he steps in. It's like I said, it's a very small space. So even I think it, well, I think, I think he actually entered like, so it was a split level house. Mm-hmm. I think he entered like the, the, I forget how the house was set up. There was there was a ba- there was basement steps that yes, led up. Yes, that's what room. it is. He was they they think that he came up the basement steps, and that's because he 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 got him from behind. Because right. think I mean remember, Chris Regan was was a, a kind of a bigger guy, not no he's but he was you know he was very you know healthy. He was athletic. All of this, all the things that Jason wasn't. So he couldn't have like come at him with a knife or all those knives he had. He couldn't have because he probably wouldn't have been able to, you know, he wouldn't probably have been able to fight him off. So he steps out with a, a the rifle and he shoots him right away, he shoots him in the head. And apparently he died right there. Um in the And there was there was that's where the blood spatter came from. Right. Right. Yeah. Because at first they said something about being hit on the head or something like that. Because they didn't know. Of course, they didn't have a body, so they didn't know. But and do you remember what Kelly said at the end, at towards the end of the show, about that? But, she she said she was kind of in shock when it happened, but she she then said it was kind of exciting, and she said that like the taste of the blood in the air like got her really excited which was really messed up. And and of course, you know, she's talking about how she loved this guy. That yeah. doesn't those things don't match. So Yeah. Yeah, so she's a psycho, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so then Ogden asked her, "Well, what happened then?" And Kelly's answer is, "We downsized him." What she meant by that was cuz he asked her, well, "You you downsized him? What what does that mean?" Um she said that Jason had taken Chris Regan's body into the basement, laid out plastic tarps, and set out to get rid of the body. He had used a sawzall or an electric handsaw and cut up Chris Regan into pieces. They then placed the body parts into plastic trash bags and then scattered the bags deep into the woods. They burned the plastic tarps and the saw blades in the burn pit, and then they dumped that barrel into the abandoned mine pit. Didn't they, didn't they find like a, they had divers and they found yes. some, some anchors or something, right? Yeah, there was some, yeah, I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what it was that they found because I don't believe any of the body parts went, I mean, it's possible, but I think yeah. that they knew if they were in plastic bags, it's going to float. Right. So they're not going to put the plastic bags. So they, they did drop the things that were heavy that would sink which was the saw blade, they had burned the tarps, and, the, and then I guess the, the barrel went into the mine pit, which would sink as well, because um, I assume it's like a metal barrel. Um, they had left his car at the parking ride. Okay, so here's the, <laughs> here's the part where you're watching the documentary, and you're like, what the? <laughs> what the hell's... Okay, so incidentally, neighbors, the neighbors, remember we talked about the neighbors earlier who lived across the street, um, they were you know, somewhat acquainted. I don't know if you'd say friends, but they were acquainted with Jason and Kelly. Um, they remembered hearing a lot of, quote, construction noises going on their house, going on at their house in October, around the time Chris Regan went missing. The sound of saws, they said, could be heard late into the night. And only at night, 
They didn't hear them during the day. They had even commented on this to Jason Cochran. He told them that he couldn't sleep at night and had been working, had been working on um, building or repairing a staircase. They told investigators that they had not seen any building materials arrive at the house. And like I said, the work never took place during the day. So, okay. So then in early November, I'm going to let you, I'll tell you what they said, and then you can tell me what you think. This is the part that I would think would give you nightmares. (laughs) So in early November, the neighbors had been invited over, not once, but several times in one week, to Kelly and Jason's house for a barbecue. They had never been invited over for a barbecue before. So this was the very first time, and it happened several times in one week. This is also in late October in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is cold. Yeah, frigid cold, <laughs> right? Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's not like Fourth of July weekend, okay? <laughs> okay, first of all, they said there was a ton of, they had a ton of meat. They had scores of meat, you know, just like all this meat. So they kept inviting us over to eat. And they said they had hamburgers. They had served them hamburgers that had tasted really strange. And they had never had meat that tasted like that before. The neighbors said that the meat looked somewhat translucent. Yeah, I forgot about that. I remember him saying that. Mm-hmm. And that it, was, it was a little rubbery in texture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, did, did they ask him what kind of meat it was? Did they say that it was? Uh, they did ask but they, ne- I don't think they ever gave him like a real like answer. A answer. Just a, I think they just said, "Oh, we got a good deal on, you know, meat. It's hamburger, whatever." Yeah. So like, this doesn't taste like anything I've had before. So later, after all of this came out, they would suspect, and they they talk on in the documentary. They they interviewed them, and they would suspect that perhaps they had been served human flesh. Okay. First of all, why would they do something like this? And do you think this is even plausible that they could have done that, that that could have happened? So that was one of my biggest questions about is why haven't they asked this question to Kelly Cochran? Because <laughs> it seems like at this point she's willing to tell them whatever they want to know. Yeah. Because they can't charge her with anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, misremembering memories or what it, was that term called um, when you... It's revisionist history. They might be misremembering, although I don't think so. The thing is, wouldn't it? Okay, first of all, that's gross. Second of all, why would you take a chance that somebody might think this is really odd and maybe I'm going to tell somebody? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's something I think if you look at it objectively, you would say, oh, my God, I would something be weird and I'd probably say something or I'd, you know, wonder about it. But I think when things are so bizarre and out of the ordinary and horrifying, if you think about the reality of them, I don't think our brains allow us to really process that in a rational way. Like we either tend to totally dismiss that or not even, it doesn't even occur to us. It doesn't even enter our mind that that could be true. And like you said, I mean, they, they're still questioning whether it happened. They're still so. questioning. And that's the thing, too, because when you see the guy talking about it, I felt so bad for this young guy Yeah. because he seems completely traumatized by it. Like, he still has trouble, like, whenever he thinks about it, 
like and it, he and he doesn't know for sure and he doesn't know yes yes or no he doesn't know for sure and, and you can see in his face more troubling than having a yes or no answer because it's the it's the unknown right it's, right did i or didn't i yeah i i need to know and that'll drive you nuts yeah but he's i mean so if it was somebody who thought hey you know i mean human nature want to be part of this sensational case that's all over the news and say oh man i you know this happened and and it, i think you would get a different vibe if they said it that way like they were right, trying right. to get attention or they were you know what i mean be sensational about it it did not seem like that at all with this guy he seemed like he was stricken by the thought that this he may have eaten a part of a person I right. mean, his, he looked like he was going to be ill. It was really, I felt so bad for him. I think they do believe that it may have happened. I don't believe they're embellishing. I just wonder why the Cochrans would think to do this. And the only thing that really, because of what you said a few minutes ago, that makes me think that it's possible is because of her comment about how she felt when they killed him. Yeah. That that was like, an exciting thing for her. So right. maybe she wanted to up the level of that excitement by keeping body parts around and then thinking about doing, you know what I mean? Well, I think, I, I mean, I don't think it had, I mean, I, I don't feel like she wanted to keep it around. I think they just wanted to get rid of any semblance of, of him um, as much as possible. The but one, it, you know, the one, the one thing that they found is the one thing that's most likely the hardest thing to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. So, that, yeah, it could be just a, you know, I mean, don't get it twisted. Criminals do not do smart things. Right. So, when you're thinking of why would they do this, is because they're not thinking like a rational human being at yeah. this point. But I also think that there's, there's the practical end, like you said, getting rid of evidence. But I also think that that takes it to a different level where there's also some kind of thrill or they get, there's something that yeah. you're going to get out of that beyond the practical. Yeah, watching other people enjoy the, the twisted as it sounds, the fruits of your labor. Yeah. Whatever. What you can get away with. Like it's a power, yeah. either a power thing or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, because we talk about this when we talk about, you know, serial killers that they're not killing just for killing. There's, there's other and there's different th different things that they get from that. And usually it's the power to control, you know, a sexual gratification. There's always a, a, a secondary kind of thing that creates that, you know, that situation or how they operate. To me, that was the question that I had was like, what in the hell would you, you know, I mean, killing is one thing. That is a completely, that's yes. another level. So... Yep. So then she she does she cooperates with the police and she leads them to the area where she says they dumped the body parts. But they don't discover. They're looking for big, you know, pieces of bones, like big, you know, leg bones or torso or, you know, that kind. They don't find that. Um, it was a while, but they ended up finding his glasses there. And then they found his skull. Yeah, they, the, the dog, they had search dogs and the search dog hit on um an area that looked like it was it was a bag mm -hmm. right 
It was like a tra- it looked like a trash bag. Hit on it. They open it up. Animals had gotten to it. There was nothing in the the bag. But the dog continued to find the scent, and it led him to an open field beyond where they were looking, where they found his glasses and the skull. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that was the only body part they found, right? At that time, yes. At that time, yeah. And they found a bullet hole um, through the skull. So now they confirmed the way that she said that he was killed, um, confirmed her confession. And I would, I would assume that looking at the skull forensically, it probably confirmed like the angle of entry and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like where he was standing, where Chris Regan was standing, Mm -hmm. all of those things. Um, So she was charged. And when they're doing the search, they have body cams on uh, Frizzo Mm -hmm. and they only show hers, but they have a body cam on her and she's talking to Kelly Cochran and Kelly Cochran is telling them everything. Yeah. And that's when she says, you know, when he shot her, there was blood in the air. It kind of got me excited. And she basically, at that point she says, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think I remember exactly what she says. She says, what do I have to lose? I've told you everything already. So I might as well. And that's when she says, you know, it excited me when he shot him Mm -hmm. and, and you know, I, I could taste the blood. There was a very dramatic part of the, of the, the, the series where they find the skull. Because they were not expecting this was this was, it was not, an intact skull just sitting out in the open. Yeah, you know, and the dog comes upon it, and they're like, I mean, the person who's there, I think it was just one of the the documentary filmmakers first saw that, right? Because she, mm, you're thinking about a year later. Yeah, yeah, late yeah, later on. So that's when they found the jawbone. Oh, the jawbone. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So the skull they found on one of the initial searches, but this, they went out to film. Um, they went out to film a year almost a year to the day later mm-hmm. to do the documentary for Discovery. And one of the filmmakers says, hey, there's something right there. And Frizzo sees it and kind of ha- gets a little bit emotional. And, you know, they have on film... Um, calling the forensics, the crime scene uh, unit, saying, hey, we found his jawbone. Mm-hmm. You know, we need someone to come and collect it. Which, at that point, she had been fired at that point. From- yeah, she was working on the documentary, but she was no longer in her position. And we'll, we'll talk about that, um, why that happened. That was pretty dramatic. And one of those things that you can't, you can't plan. Um, so Kelly Cochran, after this, was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And, of course, at her trial, she blames uh, Jason for Regan's murder. But the jury didn't really buy it. They, um, they convicted her of the murder of Chris Regan in May of 2017, so a year ago. And she was sentenced to life in prison. So just recently, I believe, in April, actually, she pled guilty to the murder of her husband and was sentenced to 65 additional years in prison for the murder of Jason Cochran. So, um, and you can, I I was starting to watch this actually this weekend. You can go on YouTube and you can watch the entire trial, including um, several hours where she's on the stand. And, and she's just very answering questions, very matter of factly, 
just again, you know, um, so if, you know, you're interested in that, it's, of course, it's a trial. So there's a lot of, <laughs> the trials are not, sure. <laughs> to me, the most interesting things in the world, except for in moments. Um, I know some people love, you know, watching all that. That's great. I just give me the highlights, you know, <laughs> I don't have that kind of time, <laughs> but there's, yeah. So you can, you can go on and there's a, you know, the whole trial in portions on YouTube and you can follow it. Um, and I started watching the beginning, I think of the trial. Um, and I, then I skipped to her, you know, when she's on the stand. Um, and I didn't yeah, it's, get, kind of, I, it's I, kind of like how football is, right? <laughs> the football game lasts three and a half hours. But you can go on YouTube the day later, a day later, and it's only thirty minutes of yeah. actual plays that are going on the field that's going on. So. Exactly. So some of the questions that I came away with was wh- why we talked a little bit about this already, but why did they kill Chris Regan? Was it just about that pact they had made on their wedding night or whatever it was? Because um, there's information that Jason knew for some time about his wife's affair with Chris and at least one other man. So, right. and they talked to that other guy that she was seeing at the time of Chris's death. And I feel like that guy got off lucky because I feel like they alluded to the fact towards the end of the, of the show that about the butterflies, right? Mm, all so right. Kelly Cochran has said there are more bodies and that they had said that they had made this pact and that there are more bodies and she named places, but then um, Frizzo also talked about how when they entered their house, there were butterflies everywhere. Mm-hmm. They could never determine why they were so enamored with butterflies. Yeah, there was and like they, the shower curtain had butterflies. There was butterfly pictures on the walls. There was butterfly, was butterfly curtain. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Kelly Co- Cochran was interviewed for this documentary and she was very open. She said, you know, I have a butterfly tattoo for every person that I've lost in my life. And I have 14 butterfly tattoos and it was there where Frizzo kind of made a connection of, I think she may have killed a lot more people than even she's admitting to. And this might go further than we had suspected. And thankfully she's not going to ever get out. (laughs) Right. So, so the idea I guess would be that, Either she or he or both of them, I mean, she or both of them had affairs and continued to honor this pact they had made. And right. each person that, that they they killed them. Um, right. I feel, though, the way that it was portrayed that Chris was the first time that she couldn't do it herself because she actually fell for him. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Jason got involved. Jason got involved. And that's why he cracked. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why he had to go to like, I don't think he had ever done anything. Mm -hmm. I think it was all her. It was all her. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time that he had to actually get involved with doing the deed. And that's why he had this episode of anxiety and um, depression and stuff. Mm -hmm. Had to be hospitalized. Right. Right. Yeah. Because Kelly Cochran's own brother since then has told investigators that he believes his sister could be a serial killer. And I'd like to know more about that (laughs) because I don't have a lot of information on that. But he has said that. So I'm going to do a little bit more digging and find out what. They had they played a recording that 
she talked to her Kelly talked to her mother while she was in jail. Mm-hmm. All right. And she said, I, I can't believe you would do something like this. And Kelly's response was really mom. You didn't see this coming. Mm-hmm. Like I've been this way my entire life. <laughs> right. Um, and what that means I'd like to know too. Exactly. You know, Frizzo also said that she took, she talked to Kelly in jail in prison and she has no remorse. Mm-hmm. No. She has said, stated that she does not, she doesn't feel Frizzo's statement was that Kelly said she does not feel feelings, mm-hmm. that she does not have any remorse for what she's done. No, you can totally see that. You can so, totally yeah. see that in her demeanor. No matter what she's talking about, it's very matter of fact. There's not a lot of emotion around it. Oh, but let me ask you this. Saying that, what was, did you see the video, the part of the video where she falls out of the chair in the interrogation room once the guy leaves? That might have been on um, Crime Watch Daily. There's a, a um, videos where they show okay. more of those. I didn't see that. Okay. So there's one where she's in the room with, um, with Ogden. And mm-hmm. he's talking about stuff. And then he leaves the room. Now, this is after, you know, she's telling him all the details and whatever. She, and she's sitting on the chair and it's against the wall. Like she's behind that desk and she's, you know, her back's kind of against the wall. The chair's against the wall. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of slumped because the whole, you know, a lot of times when she's talking, her head's kind of slumped forward. She's not looking, making eye contact. She's kind of looking down into her lap or into her hands. And so she's kind of slumped like that. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, you see her head kind of go down onto the desk. And then all of a sudden, she just keels over on her right. And she just falls right out, like slides right out of the chair onto the floor. And like within a, you know, a split second, she she gets up. Like you can see, like she looks a little bit dazed, but she gets herself up really quickly. And they're like, what's going on there? Like, because <laughs> it was on, you know, they was, saw it. Was it after she actually told them everything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. That is probably, I mean, my conjecture would be it was the realization that, wow, I just let everybody know what I actually did. Yeah. Yeah. That now, was, it was a very, it's a very odd looking thing. I've, it, it was just really strange because other than that, you do not really see her react in any kind of emotional way. She's very, um, like I said, matter of fact, there's not, I mean, when she's out there showing them where the, they dump the body, you know, she's asking for soda, she's smoking a cigarette every 10 minutes, you know, it's like, like she's going on a nice little, you know, hike or something. <laughs> it's no big deal. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but, but so there are small things that people do that kind of give themselves away. So when she's being first interrogated, the first time they bring her in for questioning, she's, got her arms in front of her chest and she's leaning forward. Like she's trying to protect herself. Right. The the entire time. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, there are things that people do that it's just subconscious. You do it and you don't even know you're doing it. And, and that, you know, her falling out like that Mm -hmm. could be one of those things where can't control it. It's just something that happened, you know, the stress of everything and finally letting go. Yeah. Like a physical you know, response too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but so I can, yeah, so I can see that. I mean, when she said that to her mom, like you didn't see any signs of this, you know, like that this is who I am, you know, like you should have seen that I could or have known or suspected that I could have done something like this. 
And then the mom says something very odd, too, like right after that. She says something like, I knew you were charged with that one or whatever, but I I could never imagine that there would be so, there would be others. Like, you can even, you can, if you can imagine even one, if you can, (laughs) you're a parent and you could imagine that your child killing even one, that is, (laughs) that's kind of, um, I don't know. There's, there's something, that was an odd statement that her mother made, too. Um, So... Because of the provisions of her guilty plea for uh, Jason Cochran's death, the state of Indiana can't charge her with any additional murders. So that was part of the the plea deal. So she can, if she wishes, she can lead investigators to bodies of other victims and there will be no additional penalty because she already has life plus 65 years. Right. Um, But But the the question there is, if she says, uh, well, Keep going because she refers to other states. So then what do those states say? Yeah. So, yeah, because she said um, she told Frizzo that she had, quote, friends buried in Indiana, Michigan, Tennessee and Minnesota. So. Right. So if if the state of Indiana can't charge her, but can those other states charge her if they lead? So, I mean. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Because this is with this, this plea was with the state of Indiana. Right. So she might be trying to finagle some some kind of deal, say, hey, I can lead you to other places, but you got to ins- you know, assure me that I'm not going to be charged with something else. At most. Right. Well, she asked that from the beginning with the Chris Reagan um, investigation. She asked right away for immunity if she right. told them what she knew. And they're, they're like, no, <laughs> uh, nice try. No. Um, so it's a little bit about Laura Frizzo, um, what happened to her. We, we kind of talked a little bit about that earlier, but she was actually relieved of her post um, as chief of police soon after this was happening. But after Kelly Cochran had been charged and that was pretty much closed, the um, city manager basically fired her. And yeah. Yeah. Great job. Glad you got the got the person see ya see ya yeah and his name we'll, we'll say is david thayer <laughs> and he had you know like you said he had bumped heads with her um from the beginning like he was not a fan of hers they 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 alluded to some kind of issue that he had had while he was in office but they never really spoke about what that issue was yeah you remember? no they what didn't it's probably there's probably some you know yeah they have to be careful because they could be sued and uh, information right. or something yeah um so but i'm sure it'll come out in news accounts so you're gonna have everybody on reddit you know talking about this who is this guy and what is he doing and um but yeah he had he had already placed her on administrative leave in october of 2016 um and then he fired her in december so um and they did say that you know not to say i mean she was definitely a a great um you know, she ended up being a great detective and and really helping to solve this case and doing a lot for it and all this. But they did say she didn't make a lot of friends doing it. She wasn't about that. She was really um, about her job and she could be a little cutting with people. Um, and I can imagine, I mean, especially when you're, like you said, not getting any support, not getting any resources, you know, that that could yeah, come, I mean, come out and how you deal with the people who are your higher ups or whatever. Right. And she butted heads with the Michigan state police as well. So, right. Because they wanted to just close. They just wanted to close it. Yeah. I mean, so she did have to fight to even get, you know, even do her job basically. Right. So that became an an issue. And of course, you know, 
it was a tense situation. And that's the way he resolved it is basically to let her go, which I thought, didn't he know that this thing was coming? <laughs> I mean, this is going to come out in this documentary. What are you doing? I mean, be a little smart about it. But and now it's become you know, pretty big, pretty big buzz around dead north. So you can imagine he's not you know, looking too good over there right now. Um, so Laura Frizzo and detective Jeremy Ogden from Indiana, they ended up starting a relationship and they've actually been in a long-term relationship for a while. She even in one of the interviews said, they asked her, well, are you getting married? She goes, well, that's the plan. So (laughs) apparently uh, they ended up together. Did he, um, propose? I thought I saw that he proposed. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think the the interview that I saw was before that happened. But, yeah, I think he did. Um, He did retire from the the police department. She moved to Indiana because, of course, that's where he lives. And I guess after she lost her position. And she now works investigating drug trafficking in that state. And here's the other thing I found out is that Kelly Cochran has a college degree in psychology and sociology with an emphasis in forensics. And, I was and in, she earned that degree before all this. Stuff. Yeah, no, no, before this. Um, I wanted to jump back for a second. Mm-hmm. This goes to explain how they could not find any evidence in the house. Right, so exactly. They, they did forensic testing and all the DNA, everything was degraded to an extent that they could not get any matches for anything. They could. It was cleaned so well. Even though you could see blood spatter and stuff, it was cleaned so well that you they could not get anything to tie Chris Regan to that house. Right. Yeah, and that, w- that would have been a big question if there had not ended up being a confession is, wait a minute, so you're saying that she killed the, they killed the guy in this house and they cut him up and they did all these things and yet there's no... So the, so the difference between this and like Stephen Avery, so mm-hmm. Stephen Avery... They didn't find DNA, but they didn't find any evidence of anything happening, right? Right. In, in where they said it happened. Right. Right. In their Here, theory. They yeah. had all the evidence that something happened right in that spot, mm-hmm. but they couldn't get usable information out of what they saw. What they saw, right. Like they, they saw the they saw the um the blood spatter. Uh and also there was fresh paint. So it was mixed but- so there was bleach, paint, all the stuff that they did to mask um, the DNA, they were successful in doing it, even though there was clear evidence that something had happened there. Right. So So that just, to me, that just kind of gives you a sense of when, like, there's times where you say, well, you know, there's no forensic, you know, evidence of this, so, you know, it couldn't happen or you know, a lot of times you'll get defense attorneys using that as, you know, there's there's no evidence. So, of course, this didn't happen or whatever. And this, because we know it did happen, because she confessed that it happened. Right. We know that you can't always go with that, you know, depending and on. The, the big thing, the big thing, too, is not that she just confessed, is that they also tripped them tripped them up on the myriad of lies that they were trying to, you know, he had never been to the house. Well, yeah, he was, we have the GPS from the car. He was at the house. So you're lying about that. Right. You know, they, they didn't have the friend, the, the, the DNA forensic 
evidence. There were other forensics that said something happened in this house. We just can't prove what that thing was. Right. And we can prove that he was here. That that all persuaded uh, Kelly to come forth with what she right. knew. And again, um, you, because because she had this degree and she knew how evidence works, that that would be the reason she would finally say, OK, I got to come clean because they got me. Because of the information that she had, because of the education she had, and the knowledge she had of forensics. So, yeah, otherwise you just keep lying and lying and lying. <laughs> I guess the the big question is, since she's in prison with and she's never getting out, would those police departments be willing to say, hey, can you just close this case for us and, you know, we're not going to charge you with anything? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the only way that because I mean, she's pretty adamant about not wanting any more charges. I, I I think she's really worried about the death penalty. Again, it would I think it would have to be, like I said, either a an investigator or a family member who really pushed to close a case. So, yeah. Any last thoughts? No, I just wonder how long it is before she gets married again. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, you got any friends? You know there's someone out there that's going to want to. <laughs> oh, my God, really? Yeah, I don't know. Um, oh, we, we didn't mention, though, she has actually had relationships with both men and women, so we don't know if some of those victims might have also been women. Yeah, that's true as well. Yeah, because, yeah, when, she, when they went to Indiana, uh, apparently she started a relationship with a woman there, and they said that was another reason why... Um, her husband was having these issues and why she was afraid he would spill the beans because she already moved on. She already had, you know, another relationship with somebody outside of her marriage. This time it just happened to be a woman. So we don't know if some of those other victims might have been. And it, and it could be that he was freaking out because he knew that they were going to have to do it again. If yeah. this act was true. Yeah. Right? And, then, and once, you know, she had him help her once and she might ask again and. Yeah. There we go. So, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty wild case. And it was not what I expected when I started watching that documentary. <laughs> no, it was not. That's why I halfway through, I was like, this is amazing. Esther, you've got to watch this. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually texted me. He's like, are you watching Dead North? You have to watch this. And I'm like, I've never heard of it. So I, you know, looked it up right away. And I'm like, okay. So, I mean, it's one of those things you start and you just, you can't stop. And it's like, you just have to binge watch it, which is great because it's only four episodes. So you can totally do that in like an, a weekend or something, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it's a great it's a great show. And if you've watched it, I'm sure you've probably talked to people and said, hey, you got to watch this. So yeah, um, I, I'm I'm interested to see what Laura Frizzo does next, because she's now a, a, become a celebrity. Um, she's on everything. She's been on you know, Good Morning America. She's been on. I think Nancy Grace, she's been, you know, all of these things. So I imagine that she's going to, you know, I'm sure she's going to get offers for different things and we'll probably be seeing her maybe in other shows. She's attractive too. Yes. She's good. She's a good looking woman. She's so. a very, very nice looking woman. Yeah. Yeah. So she, I mean, she's going to get like TV deals. Oh, for stuff. sure. For sure. She's very TV ready, <laughs> you know, just in, and also very, um, you know, very smart and very, um, dedicated in the, in this work. So I can imagine it would spin off to any number of different things she could do. So I'm right. I'm looking forward to that to see what she does next. So very cool. Well, thank you so much for, um, well, actually, first of all, thank you for telling me about it. I mean, 
I mean, I things pass by so quickly now, and I and I miss a lot because there's so much out there, and then I'm you know I'm so busy just with the podcast that I don't get a chance. So I mean, somebody tells me something. Oh, did you watch this? Oh, how many parts? Is it? Oh, it's twelve episodes. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't gonna happen till maybe Christmas if I have some time off. You know, like there's just no way. But that was like, oh, okay, that's that's a bite size. You know, thing. Well, bad. You know, pun not intended. Um, <laughs> but I thought I can, you know, I can do that. I can, I can watch four episodes. I can handle that. So, so thanks for, you know, let me know about that. And then thanks for agreeing to be on because I know that you had watched it very intently and you had a lot of, you know, thoughts about it and, uh, great discussion. I appreciate that. And we'll have to try to do this again someday. Yeah. So, sounds great. All right. Thanks so much. That will do it for our bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to thank Tony again for being on the show today. Thanks, bro. A couple more items I have here to share with you. The name of the first investigator on the scene, we couldn't remember her name during our discussion, was Sergeant Cindy Barrett. The neighbor who was invited to the barbecue and was interviewed on the documentary was David Saylor. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And it will tide you over until Season 3 begins next Monday, July 2nd. And for U.S. listeners, if you're planning to start your 4th of July festivities early, going on a trip or having a party or event, be safe, be sane, and keep your dogs inside. The animal shelters fill up after 4th of July because pets get scared of the noise and bolt out of yards. They can also get hurt trying to escape under fences, etc. Keep them safe inside your home, or if you're away, with a responsible pet sitter your pet will thank you. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. You don't need to talk about a lasagna. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.